will conclude and wrap up our inductive Bible study time. Uh, I know we cut it short, but you guys will get extended amount of time in your small groups to further unpack the word as well as how it should shape and transform the way that we live. Uh, if this is your first time here, uh, my name is Pastor Allen, and what we're going to do right now after our inductive Bible study is we transition to a, a short devotional, 15-minute um, message to kind of exhort us um, to put into practice the things we have studied and learned. So let me go ahead and pray for our time, and then we will get into it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is authoritative, that is supernatural, that is holy, and that is accessible. It is not esoteric and uh, out of reach for us, but you have revealed yourself through the pages of scripture that we might know you, that we might live in light of who you are and what you've done, that our lives would honor you and you'd be shaped by the gospel. And so we pray now, even for our brief time of this devotional, you would kindle within us a greater fervor and passion to be faithful with what you have taught us, that we might be a people who honor and adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, because I only have 15 minutes um, to cover these 10 verses, obviously I can't do that exhaustively, and I can't provide like this cute introduction, so we're just going to dive head first. But if you need a main idea to this passage, it's in the sermon, or in the devotional title, From Belief to Behavior, From Belief to Behavior, keeping it very simple so we can track along. And so let's, let's unpack this verse with belief. Look again at verse 1. Uh, Paul writes this. But as for you, as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now the you here is emphatic. Um, you don't need to be able to read Greek to see this. You get a sense of this in how the verse begins with this conjunction but, right? So Paul is narrowing in on Titus and separating him from the rest from the false teachers in Crete. So instead of the myths and commands that deviate from the truth as we studied last time at the end of chapter 1, Titus, Titus is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Did you catch that? Paul doesn't say teach sound doctrine. He tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul is talking about application, how the truth is supposed to shape how we live. Because we all know this. What we believe informs how we behave. What we believe informs how we behave. A silly short example, why did you guys show up tonight? Well, it's because you believed we had praxis this week. You see, sound doctrine is more than just knowledge of what's right so we can ace some tests. The word sound can also be translated healthy, healthy. It's the idea that we're nourished, spiritually fit. Like keeping a diet, healthy teaching will manifest invisible results. Sound doctrine that makes for sound Christians. Where do we see this? 
again, not surely in an academic environment or a classroom setting, the practice of sound doctrine is learned best in the school of life, cemented, according to our friend Jay-Z, in the hard knocks. Now, as intimidating as that may sound, thankfully, we do not embark on this adventure alone, but as the family of God. In chapter 1, Paul focuses on the elders, the leaders, on the pastors of the church. And here in chapter 2, Paul now looks to the pews, to the people who occupy them, and the variety of relationships shared within the congregation to help us live out sound doctrine. So now we move to the behavior. First, the role of older men and women. Paul continues in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Now, I don't have the time to elaborate on each trait. I would commend that exercise to you on your own. Instead, what I'm going to do is paint in broad strokes to show the dynamics that are at play within the church. Now, our culture dismisses the elderly as boomers who are out of touch with reality. You know, I've been called a boomer myself. I'm offended because I'm young. But in the Bible, elders... I don't know why you're laughing at that. That kind of hurts my feelings, but okay. In the Bible, elders are actually well-respected. They're treated with honor, people to emulate. Now, some clarification is necessary. We have various conceptions of what constitutes being old. Maybe you imagine someone in their 70s with wrinkles all over. Maybe they're searching for their dentures because all their teeth are missing. I don't know. But Paul here doesn't qualify what he means by old. He doesn't provide any parameters like an age range or physical features to be on the lookout for. In some sense, the saying age is just a number is actually fitting here. What the apostle emphasizes is wisdom. Wisdom gained through life experience. A seasoned individual who has traversed, who has weathered the storm, been obedient to God, say, in their careers, in their suffering, stewarding their finances, their relationships with their family, and serving others. The focus is less on someone's date of birth and more on their maturity of faith. So you know what that means? If Paul doesn't draw a hard line, neither should we. Hate to burst your bubble, but you're an old man or woman to someone in the church. Maybe even someone in praxis. And the reason I say that is because we have the temptation. We tend to evaluate these verses through the lens, through the filter of who can be this for me? Instead of asking, who can I be this for? Here in practice, we make an intentional effort to plug church-wide events, to give you exposure to older and godlier saints. We encourage you to seek out wise counsel, mentors. But listen, that doesn't preclude you from pitching in as well, from investing in someone who is younger in the faith. Both should be occurring. They are not mutually exclusive. You should have a Paul, you should have a Titus in your life. The question then is not whether you're old. The question is whether you are obedient. 
Are you exemplary? Or at least trying to be, striving to model what it looks like to follow after Jesus in whatever stage of life you currently find yourself in. Look, discipleship doesn't have to be very complicated or programmatic. You just need to humble yourself, to be willing to share life so that others see in flesh and blood where sound doctrine intersects with daily living, how you handle and converse with a difficult coworker, how you're using your words to build people up, not tear them down, how you spend your free time or your money for gospel purposes. So how do we cultivate these kind of interactions? develop this type of discipleship and relationship. One theologian suggested the most important aspect of attending church is deciding who you sit next to. You don't have to follow that literally. You can, but I think we all get the idea. It's very simple. Will you put yourself in a situation to foster these relationships, relations between old and young, or will you stay in your little social circle? Listen, comfortable people grow the slowest and the least. Praxis, could you put yourself out there? Could you sit with someone new or encourage graduating seniors freaking out about life after college? I mean, even within practice, could you do something as easy as committing to talking to one person you don't know during snack time? I mean, come talk to me. You think you're intimidating. I'm intimidated, you know, especially by the quieter, shorter girls who just travel in packs. I I have no idea what you're thinking. (laughs) But this is the culture we should be striving for that we aren't categorizing ourselves merely by age, by hobbies, by similar occupations, but by Christ and how we can live for him. All right, on to the young. First, the younger women in verse 4. So these older women are to teach what is good and so train the younger women in what? To love their husbands and children. Now, we'll stop here. Paul is not demanding every lady to get married and have kids, but he's not a fool. He assumes the majority will. And so rather than leaving them with no advice at all, he exhorts them to learn from those who are just a step ahead, those who have gone before them, especially older women. You know, as your pastor, I may be able to impart biblical truth, offer counsel for certain situations, but there are some insights that I just won't have as a manly man. Ladies, you need the counsel of those who are ahead of you, those who have journeyed through the challenges and emerged faithful, obedient. Are you placing yourself under the care and love of gollier women so that you might care and love well? Did you see that connection during the Bible study point, uh, part? End of verse 3, older women are to teach what is good. What is good? Paul continues, verse 4, whatever will equip and so train younger women to love their husbands and children. Now, I find that curious. You would think with all the rom-coms we watch, butterflies just naturally tickle your tummy until love gushes out of you, right? But that is to conflate affection with love. 
Love may include warm fuzzies, but it's more than just fleeting, fickle feelings. It is a skill that needs to be learned. And the best time for this lesson is now. Because the qualities necessary for a vibrant marriage or nurturing motherhood are not exclusive to marital status or being a parent. In fact, Paul seems to spell them out in verse 5. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be revived. Self-control, pure, kind, we get. But what is this about working at home and being submissive? We're just like, no thank you. Well, I don't have the time to, again, address both of these. um, But I'll focus on working at home. Now, we need to be careful, again, of reading our assumptions back into the text. Paul doesn't bar women from holding a job. After all, Proverbs 31 woman is industrious, busying herself with a lot of work inside the home, but also outside of the home. And yet, with that disclaimer made, the apostle does explicitly mention working at home. That her primary vocation and priority is as a wife and mom. I won't comment much. We could talk about this later. But does this holy responsibility factor into your thinking? Does it even broach your decision-making now? You know, are you considering the number of hours a particular job will demand? Are you guarding your hearts from making your career an idol? I'll leave it at that because we got to keep moving. Next up, we have the young dudes. So where older men are called to excel in six ways, older and younger women to examine their conduct in multiple areas, for younger guys, the apostle only has one charge. One charge, not because we're so good at it, because it's probably all we can handle. So here we go. Verse 6, Paul says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. You see, nothing goes more against the grain of our culture today than self-control. Think about it. In a society that is adamant about being true to who you are and uh, having your way approach to life, self-denial, self-control is blasphemous in the world's eyes. But it is distinctly Christian. The call of Christ beckons us to deny ourselves and take up the cross. Now, self-control is not about our own dogged discipline. What God commands, he provides. Self-control is a miraculous gift, a divine ability. It is, after all, a fruit of the Spirit for every gender and stage of life. That's why you see it mentioned in verse 2 and 5 and certainly behind the scenes, underpinning verse 4. And yet for young men, this one attribute is often the key that unlocks much of Christian living and godliness. Just consider this. Self-control is demonstrated when you die to fleshly passions to pursue sexual purity. Self-control is decisive in whether you will be lazy or diligent at work. 
Self-control is what protects you from erupting in anger and suffering the repercussions. Paul wraps up by talking now, and he moves from these relationships we're supposed to have as well as these traits that are supposed to characterize us as younger and older saints, and now he addresses our occupations. From his charge to Titus himself as a pastor to the lowly bondservant, sound doctrine should impact how and why we work. Pick up again in verse 7. Paul says, show yourself, speaking directly to Titus, but we can extract principles to apply. Show yourself in all respects, Titus as a pastor, to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. I'll stop there. Now, I can't go into full detail, but slavery in the Greco-Roman world was different, vastly different from the slavery that has marred our American history. A bondservant in your text back then was more akin to employment today than the atrocious enslavement in the 1800s. But the principle that can be extracted and applied is to work with excellence, both in content and character. This aligns with what the apostle has been stressing all along, even to Titus. Like at the end of verse 8, have nothing evil to say about us. To the positive side, showing all good faith. We aspire to be model of good works, whether at church or in the office, whether pastor or bondservant. Now, what's the motivation for all this? It's right there at the end of verse 10. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. When Paul returns full circle to his thesis statement back in verse 1, live in a way that matches sound doctrine. Be consistent. Conviction shapes our conduct, and conduct reveals our true convictions. So walk the Bible's talk so that God and his word are not reviled, so that people aren't confused by the discrepancy between what you preach and what you practice, so that instead they see your good works and give glory to God. And to bring it all home and illustrate this point, Paul uses a vivid word, adorn. Adorn. In the Greek here, it's the word cosmeto. Cosmeto, where we derive our English word cosmetics. Cosmetics. My daughter is starting to show an interest in nail polish and all those weird girly things. And I'll be honest with you, it scares me to death. Please pray for us. Now, I don't know much about makeup, but I do know this. It doesn't create beauty, but it enhances it. To adorn, then, is to arrange things so that what's truly beautiful can shine without obstruction. You know, a diamond is still a diamond, but it radiates when presented properly, right? When it is set in its appropriate golden or silver ring. It wouldn't look as nice, as attractive, attached to cheap plastic or used dental floss. Similarly, Yes, nothing you can do will change the truth 
of God's word. But you can definitely make it ugly when sound doctrine is attached to scandalous living. And yet, on the other hand, the truth of the good news sparkles most through transformed lives. Godliness makes an attractive case for the doctrine of God, for the good news that our Savior has ransomed us from our sin and redeemed us for his glorious grace. And we show it in godly living. And like thunder and lightning, let sound living follow sound doctrine. In our love for one another across the generations, in our integrity and excellence at work, we allow the brilliant gem of the gospel to beam in all its beauty. Let's pray.